big gains for 2023. That's all the news from RTHK. Now on Radio 3, here's Annie Marie Evans with Hong Kong Heritage. Hello and welcome to the last Hong Kong Heritage of 2023. Hope you've had a few good days off. So in this week's programme, I'm taking a look back at a few interviews over the year and also three key men in broadcasting and music who contributed to the airwaves and television theme songs for decades and all three died this year. I'd also like to take this opportunity at the front of the programme and podcast to thank all the interviewees who came on Hong Kong Heritage, giving their time and knowledge to mark the history, traditions and culture of this fabulous place and its people. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, in what has been my 25th year of Hong Kong Heritage. So on with the programme. In January, I had the huge honour of interviewing Hong Kong veteran singer Frances Yip, who talked to me from her home in Australia. It was to mark the passing of the wonderful composer Joseph Koo, who will always be remembered for his signature Below the Lion Rock theme tune done in collaboration with his long-time partner James Wong. So let's start there. Frances Yip had a friendship and work collaboration with Joseph Koo for 40 years. Below the Lion Rock is often regarded as Hong Kong's unofficial song, and many Hong Kongers love this theme song from a local television series created by RTHK in 1972. Would you arguably say that Under the Lion Rock is his, is his most famous theme tune? Yes, that, that song really, really, uh, it's very, very evocative with everybody in Hong Kong. Mm. And people really, really love that song because it is us. It's everything about us, how we live together, how we build this place, how we're going to be resilient and, and rebuild it, you know. So even now, it's appropriate. It's, it would never be out of date, that song. It's phenomenal. Frances Yip was first noticed by Joseph Koo at a talent contest when she was a teenager. She went on to work with him and James Wong on advertising jingles, songs and television theme songs. It really was the era of television. Frances Yip at this time was in London recording with EMI, but Joseph Koo wanted her back for a very special project. Every time Joseph Koo had written a new theme song, I was not available because I wasn't coming back. So finally, TVB said, right, 1980, we're doing this gangster thing about Shanghai, the Bund.
Francis must come back, must come back. So I got this call from EMI. I said, can you please be back January 80? I said, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I made sure I was there and I recorded the song, but we never expected it to be so big. But because the, the series is popular, good actors, good story, and it was the first time they used a movie-making method to make a TV series. A lot of live locations, real locations, a lot of intercut, you know, much faster pace than, than what they would normally do in a studio with three cameras. So it became quite phenomenal. When you're saying that, that yes. you needed to come back, so where did you actually mm. record the signature tune? In Hong Kong. For the band. In Hong Kong. And of course, that's, compo- yeah. that's composed by Joseph Koo. Correct. There's a funny story attached to that. TVB had already finished making the thing and gave Joseph three weeks to write the song. He took two weeks and five <laughs> days to write. And then on the sort of like the second last day, rang up James and dictated the melody to James. And then at the last tag, sort of said, oh, Francis is in the studio tomorrow at 11. You know, <laughs> this is like 11 at night. So James oh. is scratching his head, saying, oh, my goodness. Oh, OK, OK, I'll see what I can do. And he was inspired. He wrote it in 20 minutes and then panicked because he's never been to Shanghai. So the first two lines of the song is long fun, long lao, which means the waves crash in and the waves crash out. Right. So he rang a Shanghai friend and said, do you think they have waves along Long Pao or would it be tied? <laughs> So his Shanghai friend said, well, sing it to me, sing it to me. So he sang it to his friend and said, don't change it. It fits too well. (laughs) So that's how in 1984, when I actually sang Shanghai Beach at the Bund, I realized there are no waves along the Bund, (laughs) only tides. to beloved Hong Kong singer Francis Yip. And then another icon left us, our very own Uncle Ray, or Ray Cadero, who'd been a part of our airwaves since 1949 and only had retired a couple of years before during the COVID pandemic. DJ Uncle Ray joined Radio Hong Kong in 1960 and had a number of live shows to showcase bands and teenagers in the 1960s and he helped the careers of a number of those bands. It was during my time with RTHK, well, in those days it was RHK, there's no TV yet. I crossed over from Radio Fusion to, to, to Radio Hong Kong in Central, and in front of Radio Hong Kong was a city hall, just a brand new building, you know, with beautiful concert halls and all that. But we were in the Electra House and then Mercury House, it changed the name all the time. Uh, we had about four or six floors of Mercury House, Radio Hong Kong. 
And our concert hall there was not big enough. It was something like for six, 60 people, that's about a limit. And I ran a live show for teenagers called Lucky Dip. The idea of this show is to let the teenagers improve in their English and give them an opportunity to read from uh, from the script, which they ne- never have. So I said, well, let's let's try it that way. So Lucky Day was like a, a barrel with all the letters. In those days, there were there were no emails and no all that. We just they write letters to request songs, and all the letters get into this Lucky Barrel, Lucky Day Barrel. And then uh, I will come around with this Lucky Day Barrel, and they will pick a song, pick a letter, and they will read what's in the letter. And uh, that's how they, they will, be, well, maybe maybe future DJs, you know, and they can they can read songs and the, the dedication and all that, and that, that's how they learn their English, and uh, it was it was fascinating. This uh, series ran for four four each each uh, series is thirteen programs, and it went for four series, and uh, Radio Hong Kong's concert hall was too small. I was so crowded that we had to rent the City Hall Theatre because there were about 400 people. And it was packed every week. There was packed. People were waiting on the outside for the tickets and all to get in. No more playing the field for me Since I've met you, my heart's not free I just want to be exclusively yours once you kiss me, then I found out There's no other I care about I just want to be exclusively yours Uncle Ray helped launch the careers of any number of local bands by giving them airtime, recommending them to Diamond Records and other local record labels here. In later years... He would have a big party for his birthday in December and Hong Kong's entertainers would turn out in force. He helped launch the fabulous Echoes and aided the careers of Teddy Robin, Joe Jr., later Maria Cadero, there was Philip Chan, Teresa Carpio, Christine Sampson, Anders Nelson of the then Continentals, Albert Au, and so many more. In 2010, he produced a collection of six CDs. Called Uncle Ray 101, it has many of those wonderful 60s bands and any number of them have continued to have careers here. So back in 2010, I talked to Uncle Ray about his new set of CDs. Na, na, na. You better come home, Speedy Gonzales. Oh, where home ever you roam. Stop all of your drinking. Oh, where the fools in them flow. Come home to your adobe. And slap the mud on the wall. The roof will lick you like a strainer. Na 
Yes, Teddy Roman. Uh, I, I was amazed at that name, actually. Uh, how did he get Robin? Because his surname is Quan, you see? It's, <laughs> so, so it's Teddy Robin Quan. He was struggling with his uh, two, three brothers, Teddy, Raymond, and William, three brothers. Uh, Raymond is the good-looking one and the one that attracted most fans. But Teddy, is, he is, he's the one, the talented one uh, leading the group. And he has the guitarist Norman Chang, who, who later became very, very big in the, in the film industry, music industry. So Teddy, uh, Norman was the one who wrote me a letter. And he said, Uncle Ray, he said, um, we have been struggling for quite a while and not getting anywhere. Uh, here's a sample of the tape we, we did at home. See what you think of it, what advice you can give us, and uh, see if you can help. So I listened, I listened to this tape. And it wasn't wasn't well recorded because it was a home recorder. It was one of those RCA, you know, a portable thing. So I said, "Look, um, the music sounds okay. Why don't you come into Radio Hong Kong and do a proper recording, and maybe we can take off from there?" So they came into the studio and recorded in the studio, and I, I was more uh, more or less the producer. And when that uh, recording finished, I, it sounded very good. So I took this tape to Diamond Music Company, which later became Polydor, from Polydor to Polygram, and now now is Universal. Uh, I, I took it to my friend in uh, Diamond, and they listened to it. And I said, "Yeah, I think we we, we can uh, put them on a, on a record, so sign them, sign them, put them on a contract." So Teddy Robin and the Playboys signed on, signed on as a as a as a. I think it was their first recording uh, pop group, you know, in the Diamond. And they just took off with, uh, with the song Lies. And that became a very big hit. Lovely Uncle Ray, we miss him. I've drunk plenty of milk tea in my time but never really appreciated the number of blends that go in, nor the silk stocking method of making the tea. Annie Tong, a guide with the history tour group Walk in Hong Kong, took me on a tour of Wan Chai, which is called What Ghosts Eat. We had stopped off at a Cha Chan Teng. I've got a picture to show you about all the food that ghosts do eat, and tea is one of them. They eat everything that humans eat, as well as uh, different incense, candles and crackers, so a lot of things that they eat. And so we're going to experience what the ghosts would eat as well, or drink, and this is milk tea. And we're having it in the Cha Chan Teng. In the olden days, the British, they love to drink the afternoon tea, right? And so they, Hong Kongers, they would develop our own version. So we have um, milk tea, and this is Hong Kong-style milk tea. And it's very special because it's in the uh, intangible cultural heritage of Hong Kong. And it's different from the English milk tea. I think in order to know what is good milk tea, there are a couple of things that you look look for. One is whether it is strong. We want our tea to be strong. We don't want weak tea. It needs to be smooth, and so they use uh, the evaporated milk. You always have to have milk or condensed milk to make it smooth, and also the fragrance. So the secret to it, every Tatan Chang is different. They'll never let you know the blend of tea. They'll always have three or seven, you know, a lot of different blends of tea to get the color, the taste and the aroma. And there are procedures in making the milk tea. 
first of all, they blend the tea leaves and then they have to boil the tea. They put everything in a long tea bag and that's how the Hong Kong milk tea gets its nickname. The nickname is called Silk Stocking Milk Tea. The tea bag is very long and they put a lot of tea leaves in it. And so after the tea has been tainted a few times, the bag is just a, a cough and it's turned the tea color. So people think, oh, you're using your wife's silk stocking to make this. I was recently in Lei Yumun and I was in a similar establishment to what we are in today, just a regular cafe, Cha Chan Teng. And there, there were all these, and I must go back, there were all these framed photographs on the wall. And this man, the, the actual proprietor, is he's won prizes for his, his milk tea. And now, once they've made this tea, though, I mean, each one that we're getting, has it already long since been mixed with the milk then? After the tea is done, um, they have to pour the tea out a few times just to make sure all the tea leaves, uh, the flavour is, is infused out. And the thing is, it's very different from India tea, is pulling the tea. The action is not quite pulling, pulling is quite soft, but they're saying the word is heating the tea. So it's using force to heat, to use the water to heat the tea leaves to make sure all the aroma comes out. And then the tea's is ready because it's been poured so many times we think that it loses a temperature so it needs to go return to the stove to be reheated up and they only put the milk in before they serve the tea some uh, tea masters like to put the milk in first others put the tea first and then milk oh, this, is, ah, this is such an english thing of you know well comparably english thing about whether you put the tea in before or afterwards and yeah there's big rules and whether it's hot as well. There's also, you know, if you become an expert, instead of just saying I want uh, Hong Kong style milk tea, there is something called cha zhao. I don't know how to translate this in English, but it's take away the tea, but it doesn't make sense, right? What cha zhao means is instead of using evaporated milk, you're asking them to use condensed milk. So it comes sweet already and you don't have to put sugar in. Annie Tong of Walk in Hong Kong there. Music and culture historian Oliver Chow does some great work to preserve our heritage. He and fellow writer Gary Jiang collaborated with Hilton Chonglin, fondly known as Hong Kong's first Chinese mayor, in a book about his life and his hard work for the Urban Council, among other institutions. The late Hilton Chonglin helped bring about City Hall, among many other achievements. Here's Oliver talking about what formed Hilton Chonglin's views as a child growing up in then British Guyana. Yes, he was born in Guyana, um, Georgetown, which was then under the British rule. He was born August 6, 1922, so uh, that would make him a 100-year-old man this year. He was born and raised there until he and his family moved to Hong Kong when he was nine. So his upbringing years were in uh, Georgetown. And that is very critical for the man he became because he was born in a multi-racial environment. And when he was attending school, the two languages he was studying were English and Latin. And in his household, he was the oldest of five siblings. But his mother was a member of the Church of England and she didn't speak any Chinese. And his father was a Cantonese who went to Georgetown through Hong Kong. So that makes Hilton the second generation in Georgetown. And his father was a businessman running a lumber business. And he grew up in an atmosphere that made him a global citizen. For example, his nanny at home 
was an African. And at school, he had a lot of friends from Portugal, India, and Africa. And Chinese were a minority there. In Guyana, in those days, there were only 2,000 Chinese, and Hilton was one of them. So according to the chapter he himself wrote in this book, he said racial discrimination is never an issue with him. He grew up with them. So that, I think, is very important for all the things he did in the future, in Hong Kong especially. He never saw himself narrowly as a ethnical Chinese. He saw himself as a global citizen. That's why this book talks about a Chinese in the global diaspora in the 20th century. Oliver Chow there. Roy Delbick is a longtime Hong Konger, American lawyer and avid collector. In this segment, he talks about Wei Winglock, a highly talented tennis player who should be honoured more than he is in Hong Kong. Absolutely amazing guy who should be celebrated in Hong Kong. He was a rich kid. His father was Wei Luk, Wei Luk Boson, I think Boson Road, was in the government in some capacity. He was in one of the first classes, graduating classes from Hong Kong U, I think class of 1915. I believe he was the national tennis champion of China, maybe around 1910, 11, 12, born, I'd say maybe 1892. And then he went on this odyssey, which I think only rich kids can do. He goes to the United States, he goes to school number one, I think he went to RPI, Rensselaer Polytech up in upstate New York to play tennis, study more engineering. I think he was a very, very good student, a smart kid. So RPI? RPI, Rensselaer Polytech Institute. He ends up at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a famous school, then known as just technology. And he captains, I believe, the tennis team, 1917, 1918. He's a really, really good tennis player. He's also a great billiards player. And he has a buddy who also is a really good tennis player, also a really good billiards player. Long story short, he goes to France in World War I. There's a picture in this photo album that I have, uh, which shows him in uniform. He ends up in Cambridge, again, with his billiards tennis playing buddy. And he competes in the 1920 Wimbledon. He's invited to play at Wimbledon. He wins in the first round, almost makes it out of the second round pretty close. He then, I think, goes back to Hong Kong slash China, comes back to the U.S. He dies quite sadly and mysteriously in the 1930s. His body is washed up on the shores of the Hudson River on the, on the west side of New York. But what I have, and so lucky to find it, is a photo album. When you're saying that, you know, he gets through to the second round of Wimbledon, yeah. that is, of course, an amateur right. championship. Right. Right. So he's, a, what, working in business alongside? Well, or? no, he goes, th this guy couldn't get enough degrees, you know, <laughs> because after World War I, his service in France, he goes to Cambridge. And some of the clippings in this photo album say he's in residence at King's College at Cambridge, and he plays pool and tennis for Cambridge. I think he's a blue, is that what you call it, you know, in the UK? And then he's invited to play at Wimbledon. So the interesting thing about the Wimbledon story is he almost makes it into the third round, but he becomes part of the first Davis Cup team for China. 
And the 1920 Wimbledon for the men was won by Bill Tilden. So Bill Tilden was this titanically gifted player. They called him Big Bill Tilden. And Way met up with Tilden playing Davis Cup. So right here is a picture in Kansas City with Way and his Chinese teammates, Davis Cup. That guy, I think, is Gordon Lum, who went to Columbia on one side of the net. And there's Big Bill on the other side of the net. And Wei has this expression on his face. It's almost philosophical. Like, but part of it is, God, when am I ever going to beat this big donkey? This year marked the 95th anniversary of RTHK, which was founded in 1928. Veteran broadcaster Ted Thomas died this year at the age of 92. The first recording I found of him is in 1957, waving goodbye to Governor Alexander Grantham. He would work for RTHK well into the 70s and was a skilled outside broadcaster capable of that natural patter required at events and bringing his vivid observations of the Macau Grand Prix in 1967, Hong Kong's first satellite TV transmission in 1969 and countless other events to the listeners in their homes. This is the exit of Lord Mountbatten from a visit to Hong Kong. A guard of honour consisting and representing the three services, a Royal Naval Detachment of one officer and 12 ratings, a detachment of the 49th Field Regiment Royal Artillery, one subaltern and 60 men, and a detachment from the Royal Air Force of one officer and 24 men from Kai-Tak, is drawn up in front of us here with their backs to Queen Pier. Queen Pier itself sees the Lady Maureen, His Excellency the Governor's yacht, tied up alongside and waiting for the arrival of Admiral of the Fleet, the Earl Mountbatten of Burma, the Chief of the Defence Staff. And now the guard begins to move forward towards the City Hall main entrance. Counter-marches with a twirl of the Drum Major's baton. And now, marching through its own ranks, brings itself up facing El Mountbatten of Burma, who has stopped dead center on Queen's Pier, facing the band. Band marks time. The mace goes up, and the band halts without a word of command being given. Music of Old Lang Syne, played by the band of the South Wales Borders. The launch to Commodore Hong Kong moves off from Queen's Pier, and we hear the traditional crackle, pop, and roar of firecrackers. Hong Kong's customary way of saying goodbye to friends. And then, almost as if on cue, a giant liner detaches itself from Queen's Pier and sweeps across our line of vision, adding its own magnificent presence to this auspicious occasion. 
the engines of the Lady Maureen race astern, the firecrackers roar and crackle, and El Mountbatten of Burma, the Chief of Defence Staff, is on his way from Hong Kong across the grey pudding-like waters of the harbour to Kai Tak, from whence he will return to Britain. With the band playing Old Lang Syne, I'll take that as my cue. Here's wishing you a good start to 2024. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Every woman should be familiar with the normal look and feel of her breasts and be breast aware at all times. Stay alert to any unusual breast changes such as breast lumps, change in size or shape, retraction of a nipple or change in skin texture. Don't try your luck by doing nothing. Consult a doctor promptly if you find any unusual changes. Early detection of breast cancer can save your life. Care for your breasts. Care for your health. To know more, visit cancer.gov.hk. Crossing the road is a bit like playing chess. You need to be careful and smart. Don't jaywalk and cross between parked vehicles. Be attentive, look around and listen. For safety reasons, you must use the crossing facilities even if you have to walk further. Follow traffic rules and be aware of traffic conditions. Avoid walking into or staying in the blind spots of large vehicles. Mr. Savick reminds you, keep your cool on the road, stay alert, stay alive.